0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Ask a Scientist podcast. I'm your host, Anu Kumar. So today we're going to be talking a little bit about vaccines. So here today to help me talk about this topic, about what is a vaccine and how do we come up with a concept of vaccine, is Carissa Cross.
1: Hi everybody. Thank you for tuning in today. I'm very excited to be a part of this podcast here, helping Anu talk about vaccines. I am a fourth year PhD candidate in the Department of Microbiology here at the University of Tennessee, and I'm interested in pathogen host interactions and how uh, microorganisms in the human body can be good and bad
0: for our health. All right, sweet. So let's go ahead and um, get talking about vaccines. So before we dive into the science behind vaccines, let's talk a little bit more about the history behind them first. So how did we come up with the concept of a vaccine? This is a great question. I'm actually pretty interested in the role
1: that science has played in the development of uh, the society that we have now and how history and science is very intertwined. So as the development of civilizations and agriculture has led to more and more humans living closer together for longer periods of time, this also allowed for the emergence of infectious diseases that could then... Uh, populate themselves and spread quickly within these uh, groups of individuals. One of the most notable historic diseases is smallpox. Smallpox even dates back to the ancient Egyptian pharaohs in which we know now from looking at their mummified bodies that they have been infected with, po- with smallpox because of the telltale signs of marks that they had to endure from the infection. And there has actually been evidence that different forms of Im- immunizations have been attempted long before. But it wasn't really until the early 1700s that we began, uh, humans in general, began to notice that once somebody had developed smallpox uh, and was lucky enough to survive, they never really got the disease again, and they seemed to be protected from it from a long For a long period of time. So this caused people to purposely begin exposing themselves to smallpox in an attempt to gain immunity, even in the face of high risk of disease and a lot of times death. So enter into the scene Edward Jenner in 1796. Jenner had heard from local milkmaids in his town that were famously known for being considered quite beautiful because they never seemed to have the rash and scars associated with smallpox covering their face. And he'd heard rumors from these milkmaids in town that the secret to protecting yourself from smallpox and the horrible scarring and sometimes blindness that occurred from it was to be first exposed to cowpox. So these milkmaids, they were uh, milking the cows and the cows would tend to get these infections on their udders. And so when the milkmaids were being exposed to the infection on the udders, it seems to have protected them from getting smallpox of the human kind that actually was really deadly. This is almost kind of like fighting fire with fire, almost. Yes, which, which one's the worst thing that you could get? <laughs> yeah. And so they actually uh, ended up doing pretty well after being exposed to the cowpox and never really got disease. So Edward Jenner, he noticed this, and doing what any good scientist wants to do, he wanted to set up an experiment and see, okay, if these milkmaids say that cowpox is protecting them from smallpox then let's test this. So with the help of a little boy's parents, he actually had a young boy put two scratches on his arms, and in those scratches, he inoculated the boy with cowpox. And then let's say a month later, the same boy comes back, and Edward Jenner then inoculated him with uh, fresh smallpox from a pustule of somebody who had smallpox. He got a few blisters around the side of infection, but he never actually developed the full-on disease of smallpox that has the spread scarring and poxites to the face. And he ended up being uh, resistant to disease after that. Of course, it would be many years later until we began to understand that microscopic organisms, both viruses and bacteria, were actually the causative agents being transferred between the cow, the humans, and from human to human, and that these were the modes of infection to cause these types of diseases. So it wasn't until nearly 85 years later from Edward Jenner's experiments where he noted that uh, an attenuated strain of the pox virus could help protect people from smallpox that a man named Louis Pasteur witnessed a similar occurrence with chicken cholera in which he grew the bacteria responsible for cholera in chicken over a long period of time until this specific bacteria no longer seemed to be infectious. So when he uh, injected these bacteria that he'd been growing in his lab back into chickens, they didn't get sick. And then he discovered that afterwards, if the chickens were exposed to the virulent strain of the disease, that they didn't get sick. So this is in chickens. However, Pasteur later proved that all of this held true with the development of his vaccine for anthrax. Anthrax is caused by a bacteria. And then he also showed this uh, in a somewhat different way for a virus, for rabies. And these discoveries marked the beginning for research into vaccination and how using different forms, attenuated forms of less virulent Bacteria or viruses could then be used to sort of prime the immune system to help uh, prevent you from getting the deadly forms of diseases. So going back to the original discussion we were having about smallpox, smallpox is... Very well known due to, with the advancement of vaccination, that we were able to eradicate it first from the United States in 1950 and then the rest of the world in 1980. So that was an extreme example of a very successful use of vaccination to rid the world of a disease that from even before the ancient Egyptians was plaguing society. Mm -hmm. Today, vaccination has become increasingly more advanced, many more scientists, many more laboratories, and we have not just for smallpox, but over 15, maybe 20 uh, vaccine-preventable diseases that we can uh, address and help keep people safe from.
0: Yeah, so um, the production of vaccines has a very long, uh, extensive history behind its development. Um, So it's very interesting to see how it's developed over the course of history and that, you know, just like smallpox, like you said, is such a long-spanning disease um, that it's just been so present throughout history. Um, And we just recently, you know, like 1950s and the 1980s, just eradicated it. Um, So that is is amazing, like the power of uh, vaccines and just how far that's come. So now that we've talked a little bit more about how vaccines emerge throughout history, let's talk about um, what they're made of and how do they work exactly. Good question. As I mentioned briefly, over
1: recent years, we've learned a whole lot about different microorganisms and their roles that they play in human health and disease. Now, there are a lot of different types of microorganisms, and their numbers far exceed even our own. But for the remainder of this podcast, I want to focus on viruses because they are different from bacteria. Mm -hmm. Viruses are not considered really to be alive. Some people might uh, say differently, depending on who you ask, but viruses are unique in that they require a host to replicate inside of or else they cannot survive. That's why if you think back to um, Louis Pasteur's experiments, When he first started working with the virus that causes rabies, it was really difficult for him to understand that because we hadn't quite fully uh, got to an understanding of viruses and their nature. We're exposed to numerous viruses throughout our lifetime and don't even know it. Our immune system does a pretty great job of getting rid of the easy threats. However, sometimes we come into contact with viruses that are bodies are not quite ready to handle, and this is where vaccination comes into play.
0: All right, so um, are there different types of vaccines? Like, are they um, made from different parts of a virus, or um, are they meant to do different things?
1: Yeah, there are different types of vaccines available, and they're developed based on what works best for that particular virus and in providing long-term immunity, the idea behind being vaccinated for a disease is to first, in a controlled manner, sort of like what Jenner did with uh, the cowpox, is to expose you to, in your body to smaller numbers of less infectious viruses or viral material to prompt your body into developing an immune reaction against it. So, going into how vaccines work... When a virus first enters your body, immune cells, called lymphocytes, respond to the foreign invader by producing antibodies, which then help to stimulate an appropriate immune response. The first time this happens, it can take a while for a response to occur. But after the first time this happens, a memory of that particular invader is left behind in the process. That way, the next time your body sees that particular virus, it is already familiar with it and can therefore quickly mount a response before the virus is able to cause disease. We can produce the same result with vaccines. Rather than waiting for the first time your body sees a pathogen to produce a response that could take a while, we can imitate an infection and get there first. So when exposed to the actual pathogen, our immune system is ready to fight it. There are different types of vaccines based on what works best for different viruses. Remember, viruses, they're just as diverse, if not more diverse, than you or I, so one size fits all vaccine does not work. The main types of vaccines, and there are four of them, four main types include live attenuated vaccines in which the material used within the vaccine to prompt an immune response by you is live virus that has been attenuated or made it to where it cannot successfully replicate and cause an infection in humans. There's also the inactivated killed vaccines in which the material used to prompt the immune response is not able to replicate and it's just an inactivated form of the virus. And then third, there's also subunit or conjugate vaccines that only contain pieces of the virus to help prompt an immune response to protect against and lastly, which we won't talk too much about, is the toxoid vaccine. So certain bacteria can produce specific toxins that make you sick. And so these vaccines target those toxins rather than the
0: bacteria themselves. So there's definitely this um, concept that we hear a lot about from like, either side, agreeing or disagreeing, about a term called herd immunity. So um, I want to go ahead and ta- uh, touch on the topic of herd immunity. So that's the concept that if a high enough percentage of a population is resistant to a disease, the spread of the disease is restrained. Can you just talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, I can.
1: Uh, when we first started this podcast, I brought up the topic that as agriculture has developed, people have stopped moving around and they've started living together in large populations. Since we've already addressed that viruses need their hosts in order to complete their infection cycle and be transmitted from person to person, it makes sense then that the more people that are around each other, the more instances a virus has of being transmitted and therefore passing the disease on to others. However, when enough people get vaccinated, this starts sort of building walls around the infected people where the viral transmission is stopped in its tracks. It has nowhere to go, no other hosts to continue its transmission path on. Mm -hmm. It's easy to drop your guard when you feel like not many people around you are getting sick or that everybody's getting vaccinated so you can just maybe slack off for the year. However, it's your civic responsibility as a healthy individual to continue to stay up to date on your vaccinations. And this is because not everybody is able to be vaccinated. This could be primarily due to age. Maybe you're too young to receive certain vaccines, or due to being immune-compromised, such as those who are suffering from HIV, AIDS, or cancer, and that they can't take get the vac- specific vaccines. And then additionally, there's some people with specific allergies, sometimes to, say, eggs, that are used in some steps of vaccine development that they can't have the certain vaccines that have um, gone through those development processes. So therefore... Well, if you're upholding the herd immunity, that means you're inhibiting the virus's ability to transmit disease to those who cannot be vaccinated. And so, therefore, you're helping them remain protected and not get sick.
0: All right. Yeah. So um, now this is probably like coming up on the topic that everyone's listening into this episode for, which has been the current flu epidemic. Um so especially I know here in East Tennessee, it's been pretty brutal. Um, so I, I wanted us to just like touch on, um, you know, why is this specific flu uh, flu season possibly like worse than um, previous years?
1: Oh, yeah, definitely something that's been on everyone's mind here in East Tennessee recently. Yeah, so let's talk about the flu. Uh, as I mentioned previously, viruses are very diverse, and that's a trend that you've probably... Uh, heard me say multiple times already, so the flu is caused by one specific virus, the influenza virus. The influenza virus is an RNA virus that has two distinct proteins on its surface that we can refer to as HA and NA, in which there are 16 variations of the HA protein and 9 variations of the NA protein. Between these two proteins and all of their variations, not only are viruses diverse, but with this example of the influenza virus, we see a lot of diversity just within this particular type of virus. So they can look really different. And since viruses are very small and have very small uh, genomes, they can mutate quickly, which means that every year we don't really know what the flu virus is going to look like. So that makes it difficult to determine what type of vaccine we want to make each year. Based on extensive surveillance of over 100 centers in over 100 countries, we're working on this surveillance of being able to predict and determine what type of flu viruses we want to include in the vaccine so that we can protect about what we predict will be the most dominant strains going around. But you can see this can be quite a difficult task when there are well over a hundred different variations of the flu virus you can pick from then it makes it difficult to predict which strains are going to dominate. However, we do a really great job at this, and typically uh, the flu vaccine provides a lot of protection each year. And then ultimately, uh, in the United States, the the FDA will make the final decision about which versions of the vaccines that are going to be sold. And so this is a multi-person, multi-country, worldwide, and then within the United States, multi-organization decision about how we're going to make these vaccines each year. So specifically, this past year that we're talking about, the 2017-2018 flu season Uh, There's been one main flu vaccine that's been uh, suggested for everybody six months of age or older, and it is quadrivalent, meaning it has the four main predicted types of flu virus circulating that year covered in it. The flu vaccine this year is a quadrivalent, meaning it protects against the four main predicted types of flu circulating this year inactivated vaccine. Some of the other types of vaccines offered has also been uh, the live attenuated, the recombinant type, meaning that the antigenic proteins that I discussed previously are expressed separate from this particular virus or some of the vaccines include an adjuvant or an immunological agent that helps stimulate a robust immune response and make sure that you're getting the full effect of the vaccine. The quadrivalent vaccine offered this year that I mentioned is approved for children six months of age or older So going back to this herd immunity idea, if you're over six months of age and vaccinated for the flu, you're actually doing your job to protecting babies under six months old of age who can't get the flu vaccine. So going back to this idea of herd immunity, if you're over six months of age, you can get vaccinated and therefore can be protected against the flu virus and the potentially deadly side effects that it can cause. However, if you're under six months of age and can't get the flu vaccine, you're still going to be protected by herd immunity because those around you are getting the vaccine. Unfortunately, uh, rates of vaccination have been lower than previous years and additionally, this flu season 10 children have died due to complications in Tennessee alone, and nationally that number is at at least 84 children. Although we don't really know the exact ages and the span of the unfortunate deaths that have occurred from complications from the flu in children, I think this is very evident that it's not been a great year for us. Although the flu vaccine being offered this year has been, as some people have heard, less effective, it's still getting the flu vaccine has reduced the risk of needing medical attention relating to the flu by thirty six percent.
0: All right, so yeah, um, especially going off of the um, the statistics of the the child death, the, the children the child deaths I think that's what it is the <laughs> child deaths um, for the um, for the flu season, which is really a gruesome number no matter like what the number is. Um, But uh, according to USA Today, doctors have reported that, you know, even though the strain of the virus was correctly predicted, it can still, this strain can still cause worse symptoms of the flu compared to other strains, and that um, the vaccine can be less effective to fighting it. Um, So can you just talk a little bit more about, like, why that may be less effective? We've heard this going around. Uh, uh, The flu
1: vaccine this year wasn't, isn't working that great, but that's not entirely true. Uh, It's a little bit true, but I'll, I'll tell you the details about why this is so and why we're hearing these things. The main reason why the vaccine has been considered less effective this year is because of the different variations of the influenza virus that have emerged this season. So we've hit on viruses are diverse. Influenza virus has many different strains and forms that it can take, and the vaccine being offered this year is quadrivalent, meaning that it protects against the four main strains. So there are multiple strains of influenza going around this year, and the most dominant one that we've seen emerge is not as effective of the protection that it's offering, where the effectiveness is only about 25%. But remember, there's other strains of the virus that are protected for in the vaccine, and the other ones are offering greater than 40 to 67% protection. So a person can get more than one strain of flu as the season progresses. Therefore, some protection is better than none. So even though we are near the end of February, early March, these different strains could become more dominant. Maybe we see this dominant one now sort of drop and then increase in the other strains. So if you get your flu vaccine now, you could still be protecting against other strains that could still emerge. So it's never too
0: late to get your flu shot. Right, of course. Um, So what are some ways that the flu can, can be transmitted?
1: So the flu can be transmitted in three main ways. Uh, one way is through droplet transmission or nasal secretions infected with an illness enter the eye so say you cough or sneeze on someone directly and you kind of produce these large droplets of your sneeze or cough then those enter somebody else's eyes nose or mouth and then spreads the virus almost directly that way usually within a few meters uh, Aerosol transmission, on the other hand, is something that we're still learning more about with regards to the flu virus. But aerosolized transmission are smaller particles, so kind of not the huge droplets that fall out within a few meters around you. But aerosol transmission is smaller, tiny particles of droplets in the air that kind of hang around for a little bit longer. And these are usually transferred person to person as somebody then inhales the infectious particles into their lungs lastly and sort of maybe indirectly related to both of those is direct contact so say somebody sneezed on a surface or coughed on a surface and they had the flu and then you touch that surface and then touch your mouth or your eyes or your nose you then sort of uh, unknowingly infect yourself with the flu virus
0: yeah that's that's really unfortunate so definitely um, if you've had a lot of uh people who have been sick, um, around your house, um, probably wiping that down with like some Lysol wipes, uh, would be, uh, would be a good idea. All right. So there are, um, a couple of, um, questions that we want to answer, um, that we've seen kind of like going around, uh, the internet. So, uh, we definitely want to make sure that we're not, um, allowing like these, uh, any sort of like false information to go around and like trying to scare people, Um, into believing something that is not necessarily the truth. Um, So our first question that we have is uh, do vaccines compromise immunity and is there a difference between prior vaccination and prior immunity?
1: Right, so there there is a difference between vaccination and immunization. So vaccination is when the vaccine is actually administered. And so given to you, you've put in uh, sort of the... A, the virus or the viral particles that are going to stimulate your body to produce an immune response. And then, following that, is the immunization and what happens in that in your body after you become vaccinated. So, the vaccine stimulates your immune system so that it can recognize the disease and protect you from future infections. But, immunization is the process of becoming, the whole process of becoming immune to or protected against that disease. Mm-hmm. So the first question, do vaccines compromise immunity? And uh, so the body, and I mentioned this previously, is pretty good at handling a lot of um, things thrown at it. And so the body, your body, is able to react to a very large number of antigens or different types of uh, molecules that promote an immune response. There's thousands of different types of antigens that you could be exposed to. However, when we're developing, or scientists are developing vaccines, it's a very specific process. They pick very specific antigens that they're going to put in the vaccines. And so, for example, a vaccine for hepatitis B only contains one antigen. And so that antigen is a little red flag. It's just enough. To tell your body, hey, this is what I look like. This is what this pathogen looks like. Uh, Red flag, do something about it the next time you see it. So going back to the first part of that question, do vaccines compromise immunity? Well, the body, and I mentioned this previously, is pretty good at reacting to things that you throw at it. And the body is able, your body is able to react to a very large number of antigens. Vaccines, on the other hand, are very finely tuned. We do a lot of uh, research and experimentation to determine what specific antigens we want to put into vaccines. So for example, with the hepatitis B vaccine, it only contains one antigen. And so this one antigen is sort of like a red flag that says to your body, hey, look at me, I'm not supposed to be here, and your immune system knows to react to it. And the estimated number of vaccines to which a child could respond to is pretty conservative. But using an estimate of the number of antigens that you are exposed to, a group, um, a large research group out of Vanderbilt, the National Institutes of Health, the University of Washington, the University of Pennsylvania, published in the Journal of Pediatrics that if we do the math and let's say you get 11 vaccines you're only going to be using about 0.1% of your immune system to handle and produce an, a response for this. And so that's really not a lot. And the immune system is very capable of replenishing your naive B cells, T cells to keep stimulating and circulating for an immune response. So you a vaccine never really uses up a fraction of the immune system and you really it isn't really compromising your immunity because you have such a wide variety of things that you can react to and produce a
0: response to all right so our last couple of questions um we have kind of deal with um how to spot any sort of like scientific inaccuracies in any like sort of articles that may or may not be like circulating the internet that we might see in like our facebook feed um and all that kind of stuff so can you tell us a little bit more about just like, you know, how to determine if um, an article talking about stuff like vaccines and herd immunity, if it's uh, scientifically accurate or like what parts of those articles make it to whatever, um we probably shouldn't take uh, the answers to heart that maybe it's not completely supported by the data?
1: Right, and there are a lot of scientists out there asking a lot of different types of questions. So I think one of the main things to consider when looking at articles that cite scientific research is to determine first, what's the question being asked in the research paper? What's the question being asked by the experiment? And to answer that question, you need to be able to set up experiments in a very specific way. And so if you're just picking and choosing lines from different research articles to put into, say, a blog post that isn't really going to be supported or indicative of the things that you're trying to say, you have to consider, was the experiment set up in a way that, one, it had a good enough study size, a sample size, that would actually indicate Extrapolations that could be made on the population level, or this, you know, and where there's enough people involved that it seems to follow a trend. Another thing you need to consider is whether there were other things they were asking in the research question, such as did they have uh, completely healthy individuals to study uh, vaccinated versus unvaccinated individuals, or did some of the people have different sorts of maladies or diseases that would kind of skew the data and make it not look like what, you th- what it should look like when considering a healthy population of individuals. You also need to consider multiple lines of evidence. For example, if it's one paper saying one thing and they haven't cited anybody else who might suspect the same thing or done follow-up studies, then you need to take it with a grain of salt until there has been enough time for researchers to sort of come together, review their literature,
0: and come to a conclusion based on these findings awesome yeah so that was a lot of information um packed into just just one episode but it was very very good to know definitely very relevant um to the flu epidemic that we're that we're still kind of like seeing seeing the tail end of especially in tennessee i'm sure other states are uh, dealing with the same thing as well so first of all i just want to like thank uh you carissa for like coming on and just informing us about all of these different things, about vaccines, about the, about the flu virus. Um, I know I definitely learned a lot, so I, I can really say that like I feel like our listeners have definitely learned a lot from this podcast as well. So yeah, that concludes this episode of the Ask a Scientist podcast. So if you like what you heard, uh, definitely subscribe to uh, The Daily Beacon on SoundCloud, iTunes, or your stock podcast app. And look back for episodes every other week.